And please ride for the reading of God's word this morning, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be blessed by the reading and hearing of God's word. You may be seated this morning. This morning we'll start a new series. The series title is called Ecclesia, called out. Ecclesia in the Greek is, is the word that we get the word church from. And what ecclesia means is being called out, that God has called out his people. We'll see that throughout the book of Ephesians. So this morning, ecclesia, we gather together as the church of God. And my hope and desire for this series is that we look at this book. This book is all about the church. And I've been wrestling over the last six, eight months as I've been studying Ephesians, getting ready for this day. That, that the question continues to come to my heart and mind is what, what is it that God has for us from this book? If we were to read it this way, if we were to read it in verse 1, to the saints who are in uh, a Powell's Chapel or to the saints who are in Walter Hill, and if God were writing us this book, what would we want to get from it? One writer says it this way. I love how he says it. Uh, that we often come to the Bible with questions, right? We come with questions. And the question he says that we must ask is not what can we do with this epistle or this book or this letter, but what can this epistle do to us? How is it that God will use these six chapters here in Ephesians to change our hearts? My hope is that it will change our hearts how we look at the church. And so often the church, and especially the church in America, has become this consumer mentality. Like, I'll come and I'll go to the church that has what I need it to have for me. It's become like a convenience store, has it not? And if we don't get our needs met at the convenience store or the church, we'll just go find another church. But we're going to see in this letter, that's not the church. The church is a gathering of God's people that God would use to send out to a lost world and to proclaim his message. It says this in a, in a few different places. We'll get to this in our study. But, but it says this in Ephesians chapter 3. This is the nature of the, the church. This is what the purpose of the church is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. So that through the church, that's us, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, that the manifold wisdom of God would be demonstrated to the world through the church. But what's happened is that we're no longer a church. We're no longer a gathering of people. We're a gathering of consumers. And so therefore, when we don't like things, we'll go to another place. And that's not how God's word and God's heart is for the church. Here's what many say about the book of Ephesians. Many have called it this. William Barclay, one of the great theologians, said this. It's the queen of the epistles. Like most of us, we come to uh, Paul's writing. That's the epistles. We come, he's the man that wrote most of the New Testament. And most of us hang on that, 
Paul would say, we would say Paul's greatest writing was Romans. But many scholars in my belief is that Paul's greatest writing is here in the book of Ephesians. Because the book of Ephesians, unlike the book of Romans, the book of Romans shapes our theology, which is what we need. But the book of Ephesians is going to shape our ecclesiology, our understanding of the church. And I think when we begin to understand the, the, the meaning of the church, that it's going to change us and it's going to change how we go out of this place. Other writers called it this, the Grand Canyon of the Scriptures. Think about that for a moment. One small book of six chapters, and theologians call it the Grand Canyon of the Scriptures. I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but I hear it's just breathtaking. I hear it's amazing. And so when we think of that, think of that, will our breath be taken away by the book of Ephesians? Other writers call it the believer's bank or the Christian's checkbook or the treasure of the house of the Bible. And so what is it that God would have us learn about this book? So again, I ask the question, and I beg that we would ask the question. Let's not ask what this what we can get from this Bible or this book, but what can this book do for us? And we'll be in this book till about uh, mid-June. And you're like, what? Yeah, we'll be in it till mid-June. I love going word by word because I think there's some things in this book in particular that we have to see. If we don't see these things in this book, it will, it will misshape how we view all of our theology and all of our ecclesiology. Uh, next week, one of the things that has uh, got me very apprehensive about teaching the book of Ephesians is what we're going to teach on next week. But it's our understanding out of this week that will lead us into next week. Just as a way of understanding what we're going to get to next week is uh, one, of the, one passage for me that brings me great fear to teach is Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Even as he chose us in the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And we're going to look at next week how God chose us individually and how God chose us as the church. I think that, that, that when we read this and study this next week, that will shape everything how we look at Ephesians. But this week, as a way of introduction... I just want to look at two things. Uh, first is who wrote the book and to who the book was written to. And so let's start. Ephesians chapter 1. It says Paul. So all of us know who Paul is. Paul was probably the greatest churchman to ever live. He most likely was the greatest missionary to ever live. He was the greatest church planner to, every li to ever live. And so Paul is the writer of the book of Ephesians. But let's see who Paul was before he wrote this book. Let's turn to Acts <clears throat> chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. This is the context of Acts chapter 7. It's the stoning of Stephen. It's the, one of the first martyrs of the church. And so here it is, one of the men of God in that time, uh, one of the most godliest men, Stephen, is being stoned for what he believes to be true about the church. What he believes to be true about the gospel, what he believes to be true about Jesus Christ. And so they gather and they begin to 
stone him. And then we see in verse 38, they cast him out of the city, this is Stephen, and stoned him. And the witnesses lay their garments at the feet of a young name named Saul. So here's the man that's going to write Ephesians is now at the first uh, place of Christian martyrism. And then it goes on to chapter 8. It says this, Saul approved of his execution. It says there arose in those days a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. The devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. And get this. But who? Saul. Ravaged the church. Ravaged the ecclesia. And entered house after house and drug out off men and women and committed them to prison. Here's this man, Saul, who had everything against the church of Jesus Christ. He hated the church. He tells us that. We read that in Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22, Paul is now a convert into, he becomes a believer. We'll see that here in a moment. But in Acts chapter 22, Paul talks about how much he hated the church. And his desire was that the church would be done away with that, what he called, what they called in Acts, the way. That's what the church was known as before we were known as Christians. We were known as the way because we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth. In the life. And so Saul wanted everything to do with getting rid of the church. Let's turn to Acts chapter 22. He says this. He kind of tells who he is before Christ. He was born a Jew. He was educated. At the feet of Gagamel, he was one of the, 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 the leading theologians of the day. So he's well-educated in Judaism. He had a zeal for God. But in his zeal for God and his education, he had a hatred for the church, it says. But I persecuted the way to death, binding them and delivering them to prison, both men and women. And so here's what's happening, and we'll turn back to Acts chapter 9. So here is Paul persecuting the church, and he gets permission to go and continue to persecute the church. And then what happens to Paul, or to Saul, in chapter 9? Saul is on his way to, to bring more persecution to the church. And it says this, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard the voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And and Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and enter the city, and you will be told what you will to do. And in that moment, the, the God of the universe chose Saul. Right? We see that clear. I, I, that's important to see. That, that Paul did not go searching after God, but that Paul was going after to search out the people of God to, kill God to kill the people of God. And yet in this moment, 
When Saul wanted nothing to do with God, God wanted everything to do with him. It's going to be important to hear that first when we get to verse 4. Because people's feathers are going to get ruffled next week. I'm just forewarning you. Because we, we're going to say that God chose us at the foundation of the world. And that means that we had nothing to do with the choosing. But we can agree with that today when we look at Paul. Like we would all say, Paul wanted nothing to do with God. Amen? But yet we see that God wanted everything to do with Paul. So I beg the question, what do our feathers get ruffled for when we say that God chose us, we did not choose him? When we would say this morning, amen to that. So keep that in mind for next week. Just keep that in mind. Like put that in your back pocket, hold on to it. You're going to need that card next week to put it in front of you. Like, wait a second, we all believed last week that God chose Saul. But some of us are going to get to next week and say, I'm not sure if God chose me, but I chose God. I would beg us to say, no, God chose us from the foundations of the world. And so here that moment is that God chose Saul to do something in and through Saul that Saul wanted nothing to do. And that was to become the greatest missionary the world had ever known. That the man at one moment on his way to Damascus wanted to kill the church and God chose him at the foundation of the world to then plant more churches than we've ever seen. We are here this morning because of Saul's great work. So he goes and for three years he gets educated in the things of God. And then it says this, that Saul's name was changed from Saul to Paul. Now, when you see name changes in the Bible, it's a big deal. It's a huge deal. And this is what it means here in this passage. Does anyone know what the, the name Saul means or where Saul got his name from? He tells us in Acts chapter 22. He said, I got my name from my forefather. Who was his forefather? Saul the king. The word Saul means tall. And now all of a sudden, this man that comes from this lineage of Saul, one of the great kings of Israel, a tall man. So Saul, his name means he's tall. His name means he's big. In that moment, what does his name change to? Paul. Anybody know what the name Paul means? It means small. And what God is going to show Paul in changing his name is, though you were big, though you were a big deal, though you had everything going for you, though you had an education, though, though you had all these things that the world will say that you were tall, when you come to know me, you must be small. Because you cannot be dependent on your education, Paul. You cannot be co co committed to where you come from. You must be committed to me. And so that's who's penning this letter. The man chosen by God to bring one of the greatest works that the church, in my opinion, will ever see. And then what does he say about himself? So that's Paul. We, that's the first word. I'm telling you, I could go word for word through these first three books. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great theologians in, in England, ha has a, an eight-book commentary set. Now get this. Through the book of Ephesians, and each of those eight sets, each of those books of the eight sets, is over 400 pages for six chapters. 
Now, I'm not going to do that to us, but I, I began to read his work. I'm like, man, this, he, you talk about picking every letter and word apart. He did it. If you have a chance, read that, his work on the book of Ephesians. And so that is who Paul is. That is who is pitting this letter. But this is what Paul says about himself. He said, I'm, I'm Paul. And so the, the readers of Ephesians would have known that backstory. They would have known he was on his way to Damascus. They would have known that God chose them. They would have known that God delivered them. They would have known that God rescued them. They would have known that God set him free. And then he says this. My name is Paul, and this is what I do. I'm an apostle. Now, we associate the word apostle, and I, I don't want to skip forward to the next two words, but the word apostle means to be sent out. He was an apostle before he was a believer. Do we see that? He was an apostle to the Judaizers who wanted to kill off the church. He was already an apostle. He was already one with a mission that was sent. Was he not? That would do, do we not just cover that? And so he's saying, I'm Paul, an apostle. I've been sent out. But then these next two words change everything. He says, I'm an apostle with a message. But who has sent me out? Of Christ Jesus. So my apostleship from the world has changed from the world to God. God's the one who has sent me out. And he sent me out with a message. And the message we'll see throughout the book of Ephesians. We'll see the message throughout the epistles. The message that Paul has is that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He tells us, Jared read it over us, it's by grace you have been saved. That's the message that Paul has. Over and over again, we'll see that in all of his epistles. It's not a work of your own, but it's a work that Christ has done in you. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. Catch the next four words. By the will of God. It goes back to what we're going to study more next week. It was God's will. It didn't say by my will. It doesn't say by man's will. It doesn't say by the, the temple's will. It doesn't say by you fill in the blank of the will. It says by the will of who? By the will of God. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am Paul. And so what Paul is getting at, the very first sentence is, hey, I did not do this, but God did this in me for a purpose. Again, hold on to that for the weeks to come. It's important, it's important, it's important that we understand that. Because all of us, again, would say, yes, I believe that, that God chose Paul, that Paul did not choose God. If we don't see that in the book of Acts, we don't see that here, we won't get our theology straight when it comes to the church. So you're here today, not because you walked an aisle to pray a prayer. You're here today as the church because it was the will of God in your life. Do we see that, church? It was God's will that you would be a believer. He tells us in chapter 1, verse 4, from the foundations of the world. And that ought to make us begin to weep. Think about that. Before the foundations of the world, but before Genesis chapter 1. You see that? Before Genesis chapter 1, he knew 
that he would choose you the way he chose Saul to make him Paul for the greatest work, and that was to reveal to lost people the work of Jesus Christ through the church. That's what Paul is telling us how it all starts. So that's who's writing this book. The apostle, Paul. He says this. Now who does he write it to? He writes it to who? To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So now Paul is writing to this group of believers in a church in the city of Ephesus. We've got to understand what is going on in Ephesus for Paul to write this story, this letter, this chapter, these chapters. See, Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the known world. It would be equivalent for us. Houston is the fourth largest city in uh, America. And so Paul is writing this influential city to this group of believers in this influential city. They, they were known for their education. Even today, if you go to Ephesus, if you go to modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor, and you find Ephesus and go into the city of Ephesus, the thing that you'll see, the thing you'll notice, was their massive library. Back then, they had a massive library. Think of all the books that have been written since then, but they were known for their educational system. So Paul is writing to an educated people. He's not writing to dummies. He's writing to the most educated people in the known world. This group of believers. He's writing to a people that in that city, they had this huge coliseum that sat thousands of thousands. Some say over 20,000 people. Think about that for a moment. In, this, in AD 60, there was a place that could sit 20 to 30,000 people. I, that would be like uh, for us, uh, I don't like these two teams at all. Uh, I'll go with Texas because they got to stay in the seats over 100,000. I'm a Texas fan. But it would be the equivalent of that. I mean, this massive place. They loved education and they loved athletics. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Hello? Like, that's us. So, so we could say Paul is writing to a group of people just like us. And what was going on in Ephesus in that day was they were becoming more and more and more and more and more wicked. And what was happening in the church, the church was becoming more and more and more and more diluted. Sound familiar? And so Paul is writing them this letter. And saying to the people of Ephesus, saying to the church in Ephesus, hey, what he's going to say to them is, don't forget how you got to where you got. That's the book of Ephesians. Don't forget how you got here. Because they began to think to themselves, we got here on our own. We did this on our own. Look at all that we have done. Look at our city. Look at what we have grown. Sound familiar? He says to this, but he's writing to the people in this city. But he says this to them, to the saints of Ephesus. Now we here in America and around the world have taken this word saint and we've made it something it was really never meant to be. We have saint, you fill in the blank. And so our mindset is that these saints are these 
holiest of holy of holy people. The Catholic Church has uh, re- really done a horrendous job of that, to set man above other men. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's not writing to the most holiest of people in the church of Ephesus. The word saint means this, holy ones or set apart ones. See, if you're a believer here, you are a saint. Do you get that? You are a holy one. You are a set apart one, which says to me, who sets us apart? I cannot set myself apart. There has to be a work done in me that separates me from other people. That's not a work of my own, as we'll see here in Ephesians. So he's writing to the the holy ones, the set-apart ones in this massive city. Which begs the question for us, church. Are we still known as saints? The holy ones, the set-apart ones. If people look into your life and they look into my life and they look into the life of the church, would they say, man, that church is set apart. That church is the holy ones. That church is the gathering of the set apart ones. Or are we just a group of people that have gathered that just come here on a Sunday morning and we go back into the world and we blend right in? See, that's what's happening in Ephesians. That's what's happening in Ephesus. That the people of God, the holy ones of God, the set-apart ones of God were still gathering as a church. But when they went back into this wicked city, they were just becoming a part of the city. They were not being set apart in the city. And then Paul says this. And are what? Faithful. Catch that word in the text. You see, being set apart has to come with faithfulness. That's what James tells us. Our faith without works is dead. So what Paul is saying to them, you are set apart and you've got to continue to remain faithful. You, you didn't do the set apart on your own, but the faithfulness part we do do on our own. Do we see that in the text? Like that's the role that we play in our salvation, that God chooses us and places us away from other people, but then through the work of Christ, we stay faithful to him. That's the work in our salvation. It's called sanctification. So he's saying to the faithful ones who are in the city who have been set apart, and how are you faithful? Catch this one word in the verse. Faithful what? In Christ Jesus. Think about that word in. What he's saying then is it's not you that's doing the faithfulness. It's you that has been transplanted into Christ. You aren't doing it on your own. Your faithfulness flows out of your dependence with Christ Jesus who has taken you and set set you apart and set you where? Where did he seat you? He set you in Christ Jesus. Think about that. Like it's when you take something and you set it apart and you put it in a box and you close the box. And you can't get out of that. But Christ is the one that set you in that. And then he says this. Faithfulness means an active believing or an active obedience to God. That's what faithful means. 
And then he gives this salutation as he is going to go into the book. Grace and peace. Why would he use those two words? Grace and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what Jared sang over us. The idea of grace is this. It's getting what we don't deserve. Think about that. So he's saying, the thing you don't deserve, your salvation, it's grace. Who's it from? God. And then he goes into the next word, peace. You see, you only experience peace with God because of what? The grace of God. You cannot have peace with God if you do not have grace from God. And so he's saying, grace has been given to you by God And now because you have the grace of God in your life and you are in Christ Jesus, now you ought to live your life with what? The peace of God in your life. Grace and peace, they go hand in hand. So he says to the faithful ones in Ephesus, grace and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul, from the very first two verses of the letter, sets us up to understand what the church is and what we are to do it's the how to of the church but it will start with the first three chapters is how are we set apart because we if we just pay attention to the last three chapter four five and six that's the application part and we all want to jump to the application of the church like how do i do this how do i do this well, Paul's going to say you can't do 4, 5, and 6 without understanding that it doesn't start with you. It starts with him from what? The foundations of the world. He chose you and set you apart to be the church. And then that, when we wrap our minds around that church, then the application will just flow out of that. See, we want to jump to the application, but when we jump to the application, we don't have the epiphany or the realization of where that's coming from. And so we, we lose passion to be the church because we forget that from the foundation of the world, God chose you. It had nothing to do with you. And so when we begin to wrap our minds and hearts around that, then the outflow will be the application. The outflow will be being one as a body. Right? That's what that's chapter 4. Why is there not oneness in our body? It's because we don't understand that God did something for us. And so we think we have to be the ones doing the unification. No, the unification happened at the foundation of the world. You see that? There, were, there ought to be no arguing and bickering and fighting if we wrap, wrap our heads and hearts around God's work in you. Then it's like, oh, there's no need to fight and bicker. Because I don't have to do anything. I rest in Christ Jesus. Which takes us to chapter 5. Walking in the love. How how do we love our spouse? How do we love our husbands? How do we love our children? How do we love our authority figures? It's because we realize Christ has done something in us. Which takes us to the last. Which I can't wait to get to in chapter 6. That there is this realization that there is a great war that we fight every single day because we're the church. 
and if we're the church, then we're making steps forward into the kingdom of darkness to bring light into the kingdom of darkness. And when we bring light into the kingdom of darkness, there will be persecution. See, he holds that last piece all the way to the end of chapter 6. That's the last thing he tells the people of God in chapter 6. There will be persecution, but we have chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and most of 5, and most of 6 to tell us, hey, this is how you do the church, so that when you unify together as the church, you go together into a wicked world, and you don't go alone. And we'll see how the armor of God it looks a lot like Lego pieces. You might be thinking, what? See, when you look at the armor of God and how God calls us to put on armor, it was never meant to be put on and used alone. I don't, I don't, um, I just say it. Anyone seen the movie 300? I, I don't like advertise that movie. But if you think about 300, it was a group of 300 men that came together as one army. 300 against thousands of people. But there's this scene that shows them putting on their armor. It shows this scene that they gather together as the 300 where thousands of people are shooting arrows. And all of a sudden, they make this shield around them with their own shields. But if they only had one shield, they would have got massacred. So what God is telling us, we face persecution as the church as we put on the armor of God together. But it's an outflow of verses that come all the way from chapter 1 verse 1 all the way to 6 verse 9. It's an ongoing progression to say, hey, at the end, man, this thing called the church is going to be persecuted and don't do it alone. That's the book of Ephesians. Let us pray. God, I pray for us here at Powell's Chapel. That like the great theologian said, that we'd come to this book, we wouldn't ask the question, God, what can we do with this epistle? But we'd ask the question, what can this epistle do to us? God, change us as a church. I pray that you would do a mighty work through this book in particular over these next six months that, God, we would look back years to come and say that God did a work because of our study and our faithfulness in the book of Ephesians. God, I, I pray that we would be reminded that so through the church, your manifold wisdom is being known all over the world. that this was according to your eternal purpose. That we, the church, realized it was in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So do a work in us through our study of Ephesians. We pray this in Christ's holy name.